0: Create, innovate, collaborate. And a big welcome to Beyond Ideas. And today on the show, we're talking branding. And with me in the studio is founder and CEO of Brandheart, an advisor to 20 CEOs as a chair of 2020 Exchange, a regular guest on shows such as CBS, Fox and Bloomberg Business, a world leader in the area of conscious leadership, Glenn Campbell. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you,
1: Brad. Delighted to be here.
0: Glenn, I saw you speak a month or two ago and I just had to have you on the show. Your ideas on the current leadership crisis within global corporations really resonated with me and are really worth exploring. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let me talk
1: to that by um, talking about a little bit about my experience first. Um, Over 30 years or so, I've had um, the fortunate journey, really, of being able to work with some of the best and brightest uh, strategic brand companies on the planet. And over four continents, you know, companies like Leo Burnett, Sachi and Sachi um, love communications idea works, and Leo Burnett and I was with Leo Burnett for about ten years so over that time i 've learned um, probably the best um, and work with the best uh, industries categories, clients, and with some of the best methods in developing brands uh, and developing strategic communications so there 's a wealth of experience there that I can draw on which is which is really fabulous but in terms of this whole idea of developing a personal brand, which I now call best self identity. And the reason I do that is because I think personal branding now has actually been bastardized. Um, there's many people out there who have discovered this discovered a way of making money around this. And they're hitting people with, you know, uh, five point Lickett scale questions. To archetype them um, in personalities right. or, in, or in other things, right? Yeah, yeah. And and people are not their personality; yeah. it's it's one part of their identity. So what I've done, um, what where where this all really happened was when I was a chief executive of a company called Love Communications, and every six months, you know, you you have to sit down with the staff and do these uh, staff assessments or staff reviews. And I really must say I didn't like the process, you know, because there's so many forms to fill out and there's uh, you know, all this stuff which is kind of robotic and, and not very human, I found. So um, I'd pass that over to the CFO and I'd just sit down and have a chat with people. And what I'd do is ask them questions like, so why are you here? And they'd say, what do you mean, why am I here? Why am I here in this office? No, why are you here on this planet? I mean, what gets you out of bed every morning? Why do you do what you want to do? Why are you here doing this stuff? And for the most part, what I found is that people were absolutely ill-equipped at answering those questions. They didn't know really who they were or why they're here beyond the st- stock standard answers of, well, you know, I need to make money. I want to get a house. I need to have a family. I need to have a better car. I need to have, you know, I need to climb my way up the corporate ladder so I can get more of all that stuff. And so they had no deeper reason, you know, and this really f- fascinated me because it was kind of an epiphany um, because what I did was I answered those I asked those questions of myself And I was kind of sitting there answering in the same way. Now, what struck me was this. If we're in the business of helping organisations to develop their brand identity and then to share that in the most succinct and compelling way to the world in strategic communications, how is it we can't do it for ourselves? So what I went about doing was sitting down, developing a little model. Uh, and if you saw my first model, um, you, it's, it's really quite naive, actually. But it was based on our organisational brand identity approach. Very, very uh, similar. And so I developed this little model, and I actually sat down with each member of the staff and helped them to develop their own identity. Now, I've got to tell you, at 35 people... And um, it took a while to get it all done. But once it was all done, I then got them together to share their identities in a big forum with each other. Each individual had the opportunity to stand up and say, this is who I am, and this is why I'm here on planet Earth. Um, the, the results of doing that were extraordinary. So what I found was this, people got a deeper understanding of each other. People communicated with each other much better. People collaborated, cooperated, co-created, all those things so much better. The quality of work in the agency increased massively Um, and our clients noticed the difference as well. Our clients were saying, what have you done to to your people? I mean, they were good before. Now they're remarkable. Um, So what I thought was, if I can do that in this little test model and that's the sort of results I can get, imagine if I could work with leaders, on this basis, because my view is that leaders, unless they're visionary, um, they're not going to be able to run visionary organisations. So that are all kind of interconnected. So then that's really where I started. I started developing the
0: model from there, and that was about 15 years ago. It's amazing what can happen over coffee. I'm intrigued by that core message you talk about the leader's best self-identity, and that identity being in sync with the organization's identity. I listen to that and it's both confronting and also disruptive and also very rare. But then if we look at the facts such as only 12 of the Fortune 500 companies of the last 50 years are still in existence today, I can't help but think there is something really significant in this line of thinking. Can you take this a step further for us?
1: Well, first, let me start with the best self, because I've developed a model that really is a unique fusion of Eastern and Western philosophy, quantum physics, neuroscience, um, a simple brand identity model, and over 30 years of experience developing brands, really. And so it's actually quite unique uh, in the world of personal branding, this best self identity model I've developed. Um, And so... When you start to think about who the most powerful person in an organization is, all the studies on leadership tell us it is the leader. Everybody knows that um, they, they look to the leader to set the tone of the organization. And it is the leader in terms of what they um how they behave that most people are getting their cues from. Now, all the research from one of my favorite guys on leadership, Daniel Goleman, speaks to that. And so therefore what I did was I thought if I'm going to work on this identity stuff, I've got to work with the leader first because it's the leader that sets the tone. so that became really important to me so and and then or and/ or the leadership team, and then once you've got the leadership team having full um, uh, full understanding of of being self aware of actually being conscious, you know moving out of you know thinking to being to knowing. When you've got them at a level of consciousness where they're self-aware and where they have self-control and understanding their own identity, they're far better equipped to develop the identity of an organisation in a symbiotic way, right? So that's the next thing I do. After developing the leader's best self-identity, I work with them to develop their organisational identity and I create a symbiotic relationship between the two. And so these things need to be in harmony, right? And if they're not in harmony, what happens is you get a culture that, that is in disharmony. And when you've got a culture in disharmony, you've got a culture of people that are not
0: equipped to keep the promises the organisation makes. So what you're saying is that in the executive team understanding who they are personally and what their purpose is, it sets a tone and culture of the organisation, which then has a cascading effect through the corporation. Is that an oversimplification of what you were saying? No, no, I think that's an accurate summary because, and you know, the key problem is that this is not happening
1: in most cases. For the most part, um, leaders are not self-aware. And I have to tell you this, self-awareness is one of the four cornerstones of what constitutes a remarkable leader. If leaders are not self-aware and I think for the most part they're operationally aware, they're functionally aware, which means they're very transactional they're, they're involved in the operations of the business and in increasing transactions rather than elevating out of that and, and having a higher level of consciousness of self. and so therein lies the problem and and I think you're right you know it is self-awareness it is the consciousness of the leader around self first and foremost. And then identity of self and then identity of organization. Those two things are crucial because once you get harmony between the two, and I think it's worth stating this again so that people know and understand this. Once you get harmony between the two, then you're better equipped to create a culture that actually can develop its turn itself from a business into a brand. And I believe there are not many brands out there. This word brand is bastardized as well. It's being used everywhere. And there are just not many brands out there. There are a lot of transactional
0: businesses, but not many brands. Can you say more about this? I remember hearing you talk a month or two ago, and one thing that resonated deeply with me was your viewpoint that most of the brands in existence today are just commodity traders. I think this is so important for our listeners to understand because it speaks so much to the leadership crisis that we're currently facing.
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a massive fixation on um, transactions, creating more transactions that are more valuable. And I think that fixation is from the leadership team. Um, and probably not shared that much with the organisation because really most people in organisations would like to know that they belong to something. is a bit more than about just making money, whereas at the top, You know, it seems to me the whole engine of business these days is really about making money, about increasing the number of transactions and the value of each transaction. It is a fixation, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And so you can't, it's very hard to be a visionary company and just be focused on transactions. So you've got the CEO, you've got the board of directors, you've got the chairman, you've got the entire management team that are literally killing themselves to make more money. And, you know, I remember in my days that we used to have quarterly meetings with the CFO or the group CFO, and those quarterly meetings um, then became monthly, and then they became weekly. And so I got to the point where I'm sitting down with the group CEO weekly, a group CFO weekly, to talk about how much money I've made in the last week or how I've cut costs. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this had to be reported back to, um, you know, the global head office. It was just the way things are. So, you know, how do you actually run a company that can be truly visionary, that is harmonious, where, you know, you've got a leader who's got a high EQ, not just IQ, but EQ, emotional intelligence, um, when they're completely fixated on, you know, um, making more money and they've got their systems and processes in the organization, the whole engine is designed around that. It's very hard to move from being transactional to actually engaging your first audience, which is your employees, and then emotionally engaging with your customers in a way that they want to stay
0: with you. They want to be loyal, and they're quite happy to pay the price that you're asking. I find it fascinating what you were saying. The development of the personal brand, or as you put it, the ideal best self, And if I look at the world today, we're evolving from a culture where there's been that separation of self from work. One of the mantras that was drilled into me when I was starting my career was you do business with your head and home with your heart. What you're saying is a complete anti-pattern to that. It's also what I see in the changing patterns of consumer behavior. So is facilitating this shift within leadership really where you see your value lie I think it is the greatest benefit because what I'm seeing mostly is the
1: opposite to that. You know, that mantra of, you know, do business with your head, um, I think has been proven in uh, leadership research to not be correct. In fact, uh, Daniel Goleman and several other of his cohorts have proven that the, 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 um, balance between, um, EQ and IQ is about 85%, 15%. So 85% EQ now we're talking about doing business with the heart here yeah. not not the head yeah. and 15% iq and so the, the leader doesn't need to be the smartest person in the room the leader doesn't need to be totally um you know, equipped to answer every single question. Actually, the leader in the room, um, his job really or her job really is to actually resonate with people in a way. And so now we're talking about energy, right, to resonate, emotional energy, thought energy, to resonate with people in a way that equips them to be able to do their best work as well. And so we're talking about organisations, um, you know, currently we've got organisations who are dealing with the head, And my view of uh, leaders who are, you know, highly fixated on that approach to, to business are the guys who uh, use the default leadership style, which is command and control. And so command and control, unless you're in a state of crisis or in a state of turmoil, command and control leadership is actually the least effective style. But it's the style that I see which is most prevalent, um, in organizations. And so you've got command and control leaders out there trying to tell organizations what they need to do. And this is creating massive disharmony in organizations. People who are being, being incredibly unproductive now because they're actually unhappy with where they work. And leaders don't seem to understand that shifting from that style over to the heart-led approach or the emotionally intelligent approach to leadership is going to deliver them far greater returns on their investment and an organisation that is incredibly harmonious
0: and well-equipped to deliver on that. You mentioned this is a mixture of both Eastern and Western philosophies. You also talk about quantum physics. There is clearly a lot of science behind this. Can you briefly give us some insight? into the foundation of Brandhart?
1: Well, remember a little while ago I was talking about that my entire methodology for best self-identity is a fusion between neuroscience, quantum physics, and Eastern philosophy, and specifically the Eastern philosophy I tend to um, enjoy most and infuse most into my method is the Taoist philosophy or Taoist philosophy, depends on how you pronounce it. But um, let's go to neuroscience for a minute. I kind of look at this and go... If a leader doesn't fundamentally know and understand um, neuroscience, in fact, how the brains work, how people's brains work, um, you know, what's the difference between someone's brain and their mind? Because we are actually not our brain. We are our mind. We are our consciousness. Our consciousness is what actually uses that organ, that incredible organ, the brain, to do our bidding for us. And so unless people, unless leaders actually know and understand neuroscience and how you know, the brain works and how people use their brain, um, that's going to be a big disadvantage to them, a big disadvantage. Unless they know and understand quantum physics, which is fundamentally all about energy. Because remember we were talking before how we, we really need to have leaders that create resonance, right? This kind of energetic positivity in people that equips and enables people to, you know, raise their level of energy as well to a point where they're, you know, uh, empowered, to do the kind of work that we know that they can do. So unless leaders actually know and understand quantum physics as well, how energy works and how to control their own energy, which is their own thinking and their own um, emotional states, then how can they possibly expect an organisation to be attuned to what they're looking to do? And organisations that are not attuned are disharmonious. And so you've got cultures uh, and you've got cultures that are disharmonious. They're not equipped and the and the kind of the thing that blows my mind is when you look at the statistics, and I really just want to share a couple of statistics with you around this because it's actually devastating. It really is devastating. Global research that was conducted between 2012 and 2014 on a hundred thousand employees across the world uh, revealed this, that employee depression has increased by fifty-eight percent. Anxiety has increased by 74%, stress by 28%, and all three combined have increased emotional health cases from 55% in 2012 to 83% in 2014. Now, can you just imagine the loss in revenue because this is happening? Because people in organizations are actually not working at an optimal level, either emotionally or in the work that they're doing. In Australia, let's get let's get back home and look at the research in Australia. Uh, Medibank conducted some research several years ago that revealed that about forty percent of all Australians suffer stress and anxiety in the workplace in any given day. Now, um, PwC did some research as well, which revealed that the cost of this stress and anxiety in Australia is costing us hundred billion dollars per annum in lost productivity. And that lost productivity manifests itself in two ways, right? The first way is absenteeism, and that's people not coming to work when they're not sick, right? They just don't want to go because they're not happy there. And mostly that happens around Monday and Friday, right? So people take the long weekend. Um, and the other thing is presenteeism, and that's people at work, but they're not working at an optimal level, if at all. Right, so I'm here. I actually don't like this place. I don't. Re- I'll just do what I need to do to get what I need to get, and then I'm out of here. And so there's no loyalty in this organisation. Now, my my view is that this the buck stops at the leader. This is a fundamental leadership challenge, and leaders has got to step up and do it. And uh, defaulting to a command and control leadership style is not going to solve this problem
0: because it is a universal problem and it's massive. Glenn, those stats are truly compelling. It doesn't paint a good picture of life within these organisations and the pressure workers are under. You could almost say it's a health crisis brought about just by turning up to work. It's crazy. It is crazy. Is there a solution? I mean, even if you have a CEO or board director for that matter who understands and buys into this philosophy, the risk is always that they'll just get eaten up by the machine. Is there a way we can overcome this? Because we're seeing at the moment many corporations just staring at the change and disruptive innovation coming at them like deer in headlights and doing nothing about it. There has to be a way to reinvigorate leadership within the existing command and control structures that are today's corporations. What are your ideas on this? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question because, um, you know, this paradigm
1: that we're currently facing, and it is a paradigm, um, is very hard to break out of because as you said, Brad, the whole machine is designed to fuel it and to keep it going. The whole machine is designed to do that. Yet I believe it can be done. And when you look at specific organisations out there, and there are not many, there are case studies of organisations who have broken this paradigm, who actually operate in a very different way. It can be done. And I my approach to it is this. The first thing I would do is work with the leadership team, the CEO first, and then the rest of the leadership team. Now, whether that's a board or whether that's a management team, whoever it is that is you know in control of and running this company from from that point of view. I'd get to those guys first and kind of talk to them and teach them these philosophies, how to actually understand that there is a better way of doing things, and it's not the current model. So once you develop an understanding, and and by the way, there's a better way of doing things where you will massively increase your return on investment, right? So the current model Whilst, uh, leaders are fixed aid, fixated on it because they think it's the best model, it's going to deliver the best return. It's actually a long way away from delivering the best return. Do you remember that, um, that body of work that Collins and Porras did in, um, in their book Good to Great? Yes. Where they did a massive amount of, uh, study over a thousand organizations over a long period of time. And what they found was this, that visionary companies outperformed all others to a factor of 15 since 1926 on the stock exchange. Now, to be a visionary company, you just must have a visionary leadership team. And that really starts with, The identity, the personal identity of the team, the self-awareness bit and the self-control bit that I was talking about before. So the personal identity is where I would start with the leadership team. Then what I would do is move over to the organizational identity and get that um, described as well in that symbiotic method that I talked about. And then you need to equip the leadership team with an understanding of how to develop a culture that is equipped to keep the promises of the brand. And you've got to be really clear about who the brand is and what the promises of of the brand are. And that's a lot of work in itself, you know, to have a culture completely unified around why they're here and who they are, why they exist beyond just making money it takes a lot of work to do that and then what you need to do is systematically move through all the systems and processes and have those systems and processes actually work for this particular approach to business and you know what i th- this is what i think it doesn't take long to understand the consequences of this the benefits benefits of this because the first people that notice it is the um not just the leadership team but the entire organization Everybody gets a whole lot happier doing what they're doing. They turn up to work. They're not suffering this level of stress and anxiety we are talking about before or these emotional problems we were talking about before. They're actually happy to be there. I love being in this place. I love being a part of what we're doing here. Whilst we're making a lot of money, we're doing something that is a higher level has a higher level purpose for humanity for the for um, our first and primary audience, which is our staff and then for our customers those people we serve and so there's a bigger game that's being played now does that take away the commercial aspect of the business absolutely not the commercial aspect is still in, still imperative, but it does take away this other part of the paradigm which is the only way that transactional companies, can increase transactions is through promoting via cost-cutting or discounts or free offers. You see this everywhere now. Just turn on the television and look at free-to-air broadcast and you'll see everybody out there yelling about the next discount that they're offering. So this model gets perpetrated through the whole system. And to break that promotional approach to you know, fueling that transactional commodity trader model is very hard to do as well. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. So you've got to have a leadership team that is big on courage and big on vision and is kind of up for the task. And that's hard to do. And so that's why with, you know, the work that I'm doing now, I'm mostly focusing on small to medium enterprise because they're far more agile. They're far freer to say, you know what, Glenn, Um, you've convinced me uh, that this is the way to go. So let's get going. Let's start. Let's do it now. Let's start today. And and so they're far more open to the idea. They're not entrenched in this belief system, even though the paradigm is there. Um, They're quite willing to try a new approach to business. And the great thing is, once they know and understand how to do this, they can move quickly to
0: execute it. And that's when you start to see the results. Glenn, what about startups? Founders typically start out on their journey with an authentic sense of purpose, but struggle to maintain that as they scale their business. And by the time they hit 100 employees or more, it's starting to become really difficult. What advice would you give to a startup founder to maintain that sense of purpose as the core of the company's brand as they set out and scale their business?
1: I think it's gotta be um I think it's gotta be right at the beginning. And that's why I do love working with entrepreneurs as well, because this is how they start the game. You know, this is how they start the show. They start by developing their own personal identity. I mean working with one guy now who is um is already running a very significant business and is now going out to start another one. And so I've done his best self identity. He now wants me to help him to do his organisational identity and And by the way, the organizational identity is not something that is entirely rational, it's very emotionally based um, because we are talking about emotional engagement here, right? I mean, brandheart my business is really all about turning businesses into brands through the magic of emotional connectivity. And so emotional connectivity is the energy, right? It's the energy connectivity between the organization and the people. And and the way that entrepreneurs have got a great um, start at doing this stuff is through getting their brand story right first. What's the story? You know, what is the story that we want to engage people in? And so one of the things as I do is I help leaders to understand the neuroscience behind this, you know. So this is this is the way the brain works. The brain remembers with more detail, um, with greater engagement, and much faster, an emotionally engaging event, right? And so what's a story? A story is an emotionally engaging event. What happens with businesses, they start out telling their story, and then somewhere along the line, they get transactional. And they, they forget that it's the story that engaged people in the first place and got their business off the ground and really started to get momentum around it. Then all of a sudden what happens is they say, well, you know, now what we've got to do is really push these products. And now what we've got to do is start discounting. And now what we're got to do is start giving away stuff because that's what everybody's doing. And they walk away from the thing that most engaged people in the first place, which is the story, their reason for being, you know, their why and their who is what really engages people in. And the transactional side is the thing that actually creates the disengagement. That's what creates the disloyalty. That's what turns them into a commodity trader. Oh, now you're discounting everything. Now you're just another one of these things out there that's doing this stuff. And I've got nothing to belong to. So when it comes to you, and this is what happens with most retailers in this country, I think. When it comes to you, I'm just going to wait for the biggest discount. Then I'm going to go in there and buy the product that I want. Then I'm walking out. And then I'm not going to think about you again until you offer me the next biggest discount. And so what you've got is organizations actually educating people to buy on discounts and to treat the organization as it treats them. You know, if, if you're a commodity transaction based business, then I'm just going to treat you as a commodity transaction based business. And so therefore I'll go in, I'll do the transaction and then I'll leave. And I won't be loyal. I won't pay the price that you're asking me for, that it's fair, I won't do it because you haven't emotionally engaged me. And so this is happening, as you can see, Brad, it's happening everywhere. So it's like a plague, actually.
0: We're being conditioned to operate that way as consumers.
1: We are being conditioned to operate that, operate that way as consumers. But as people, right, we actually want to connect with and belong to something that is bigger than that. We want to belong to something that has got more, you know, um, connectivity, emotional connectivity with us, you know, in terms of our values or in terms of the story or in terms of the reason for being that we really subscribe to and we want to be a part of. And so when organisations do do that and do it well, consumers stay loyal and they pay the price. I mean, when was the last time you saw Apple actually discount anything? How How is it that um, an organisation like Apple... Which is the number one brand on the planet has products that are not the best products on the market. Their phone is not the best phone on the market. Their laptop is not the best laptop in the market. They don't have the best technology anymore. I think they've, 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 you know, moved down from that, but they do have an approach to business to approach to their consumers that keeps their consumers loyal. They actually want to be a part of what Apple stands for. They want to be a part of this. And now you're starting to see this with guys like Elon, Elon Musk, right, With his with his brands and with his products. People want to be a part of this because they see and understand the story. They feel what it's all about. They're connected to it. And so they want to be a part of that and they're quite happy to pay. People are happy to pay full price for things that they feel they can be a part of. And most organizations in this country and beyond, are not treating people like that. They're treating people like they're uh, a transaction. We need to sell more of this stuff. So what are we got to do to sell more? And, and you know, as part of that, you've got marketing directors are actually coming in and subscribing to that. What's the next promotion that we can run that is going to create a spike in the revenue so we can just sell more stuff to more people? And the lowest form of marketing, I, f- I find, is happening everywhere now, which is just let's offer them discounts. Let's discount this stuff, get the revenue spike, margins are down, but we've got the revenue spike. The board is happy. The management team is happy because there's more revenue and we're done. Let's go do it again next week. But when
0: you're engaged in that conversation, it's a race to the bottom.
1: It's a race to the bottom. It absolutely is. I mean, I think organizations who are doing this consistent, consistently, um, have got to use by date. They just don't know it yet. they're, They're going to die. There's no
0: doubt about it. Yeah, this is so vital, not just for survival, but to thrive in the disruptive change that is here now and is only going to accelerate around us. I want to talk about the education system for a moment. Surely it has a role to play here. One of the ideas that occurs to me as we talk today is a question. Why aren't university students and even kids at school being taught this? Well, yeah, they're not. Um,
1: you know, I, f- I find um, kids are coming out of school, kids are coming out of university with no understanding of self. So that's one aspect of it. I mean, just think about your days when you came out of school. I can tell you in my day, when I came out of my school, I didn't have a clue really about I wasn't equipped for life. I came out of a private boys boarding school. I wasn't really equipped for life. Um, And the education I had didn't equip me for the world I was walking into. And then, you know, coming out of the university system as well didn't really equip me. What I found um, even in my days when I thought the education was actually really of a high standard, you know, they didn't have any more than 15 or 20 students in each class. These days they've got 100 plus in big theatres. Um, so, you know, um, we had much more, you know, access to the lecturer, much more access to the teachers who, you know, were working with us. Um, so it became, it was more one-on-one in those days. These days it's not. Um, so the, the aspect of self, I think, is one thing. I mean, imagine, imagine this, Brad, having a whole bunch of kids coming out of school with their best self-identity defined.
0: That would be really cool.
1: Could you imagine that? Could you imagine what kind of world we would live in where you've got a 16 or 17-year-old who says, I know who I am and I know why I'm here at this stage in my life and I'm very clear about what it is I want to do and how I'm going to go about doing it. And so the education system doesn't equip Um, kids with that these days, nor does, nor does, um, you know, uh, tertiary education. And I think, I think both are probably a long, long, long way behind where we are on this planet at the moment. You know, the systems are archaic. The systems are designed, like business, to be quite transactional and very, um, revenue focused, very ROI focused. I want you, I want to throw something at you here, Brad, and just think about this in the context of education, right? So did you know that there's a thing called the knowledge doubling curve? Now, this was attributed to Buckminster Fuller, and they calculated in the year 1900 that um, the amount of human knowledge doubled every century. Now, a more recent estimate calculates that human knowledge, on average, is doubling every 13 months. In a couple of years' time, human knowledge will double every 12 hours. Now think about this for a minute. You've got an education system that is just steeped in what they're teaching people, but actually human knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. Kids who are learning the stuff that they're learning that they learned 50 years ago, 60, 70, 80 years ago, or 100 years ago, are not coming out equipped to deal with a world that is moving this fast and is getting this complex, right? And so here's another piece of research for you. IBM did um, a global study on business leaders, and I love their methodology because they've got about 1,500 leaders that they interview one-on-one, right? So they sit down and have a discussion like we're having today. And this research was on complexity. And what they found was from this research was that over 75% of all leaders said they are just not equipped to deal with the complexity on business and in the world at the moment. Not equipped. They can't keep up. They can't handle it. And so we're not equipping people not so much with knowledge, right, because knowledge is moving so fast. And and with knowledge, there's a lot of information that feeds it, and there's also a lot of mis- misinformation. So what we need to do is actually equip people to think and to move beyond thinking into that kind of uh, what I call the internal unwavering certainty of knowing. And that knowingness is is, um, a lot of the work that I do revolves around helping leaders to get into a state of knowing. Now, I tell you what the key to that is, in my, in my view. The key to that is to get conscious and non-conscious mind attunement right? Conscious, non-conscious attunement. So, you know, we've got our conscious mind and that's our, you know, that's our everyday mind where we think, uh, we reason, we plan, we, um, you know, it's our willpower. That's, that's our conscious mind. What I call the non-conscious, other people call it the subconscious or, you know, the unconscious mind. I call it the non-conscious mind. The non-conscious mind is actually the powerhouse behind everything we do. The conscious mind actually controls about two to four percent of what we perceive And our behavior, our non-conscious mind controls 96 to 98% of that, right? Our conscious mind, um, if you were to look at it like a computer in terms of bits per second, our conscious mind is about, works at about 2000 bits per second. Our non-conscious mind works at 400 billion bits per second. Now we live in our conscious minds. Leaders live in their conscious minds, their thinking minds. It's the thinking that's going to get me through this. Actually, it's the thinking that is slowing you down. And so when you when you um, get attunement between the conscious intentions and the non-conscious mind in terms of its belief systems, imagine what you've got here. You've got this um, amazing consciousness that is working at 400 billion bits per second that it can do almost anything that you want it to do. And so therefore this, when you look at the knowledge doubling curve, the unified conscious non-conscious mind, the unified being, Um, around its own intention, um, is going to have no trouble to keep up with any of this stuff. The vast majority of business leaders, I'd say 98% of all leaders on this planet, do not know this stuff and are not using it. Therein therein lies the problem, right? Now, another another part uh, of my answer to this question is this, and I want to tell a story around this because I've got this mate of mine who um, is a neuroscientist amongst other things, Now what he's, he's got, he's got two kids. One is 14 and one is 11, right? Boy's 14, the girl's 11. And so what he's teaching these kids is this. He's teaching them neuroscience at this age. He's teaching them quantum physics at this age. He has me in there working with them on um, philosophy and identity. He said to me, Glenn, when these guys get to about 15, I want you to do their identity work quite happy to pay you to do that. Um, He's teaching them philosophy. He's teaching them how to um, get conscious, non-conscious mind attunement. He's teaching them how to understand that the thinking can take you so far, but really what you want to do is allow your non-conscious mind to deliver you the knowing, the answers that are there. And the non-conscious mind can do that, right? Because the memory horizon for the non-conscious mind, by the way, is forever It remembers everything that you have sensed, touched, thought, and felt. Um, And it and it is in attunement. The non-conscious mind is actually in attunement with the quantum field of energy. And so you get the answers from the quantum field as well. Now, most people don't know or understand. Most leaders don't know or understand that as well. So the thing that he's doing is um, he's equipping these guys with what they need to actually um, live in this world that is doubling every 12 hours or 13 hours that's number one number two is he's teaching them business right both of these guys have got their own online business and so think about this brad by the time these kids are 18 they'll be turning over tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars every month do you think they want to go they're going to want to go to university and have that whole thing derailed and so you know to me i'm going back to the fundamentals um, with kids coming out of school, I would want them to know and understand their why and their who, just as leaders need to know and understand their why and their who. Yeah. what You know, those two questions, it's a wonderful quote um, that I want to refer to here from Mark Twain, who said this, the two most important days of your life are when you were born and the day you find out why. And the vast majority of people on this planet don't know why and they don't know who. And so they're, they're, they're going to be in a constant state of struggle, right? And when you don't have that internal certainty and you're battling external uncertainty with internal uncertainty, what do you think is going to happen? It's just more chaos, right? You're just adding to the chaos and the struggle of the world. And so what I want people to do is actually the only way to battle external uncertainty, and by the way, everything external is uncertain, Always has been, always will be. The only way to battle external uncertainty is with internal certainty. Now that goes for the individual and that goes for the organization. Organizations that have internal certainty, you know, who they are, why they're here, what their signature behaviors are around their culture, um, how, what they're, des- you know, what they're designed to do and how they serve people, how they emotionally, energetically connect internally and externally, when you've got organisations like that, they're best equipped to to battle the external uncertainty, and the vast majority of organisations are not like that. They have massive internal uncertainty, and they're
0: trying to battle external uncertainty with that. What do you think the result's going to be? Glenn, I could sit and listen to you talk for hours on this. I find your insights incredible, but unfortunately, time has gotten away with us today, Glenn, where can people go to find out more about Brand Heart and, more importantly, how do people connect with you? So
1: um, I have a website. That's, a, that's the first point of connection. And the website is um, called Brandheart, And the URL is brandheart.com.au. Um, and that's where people can contact me uh, through that. There's a contact form that they can contact me there through by, via email. Um, And also there's a bunch of resources there as well. You know, I mean, I'd recommend people to go to to my website and download my Best Self-Identity Manifesto. It's got a lot of this stuff in there. It's for free.
0: Glenn, it's been an honor having you on the show and thank you for your time. A
1: real pleasure, Brad. Thank you very much.